0: I'm ready. What What are you ready for?
1: Doubles. We're playing tennis. Doubles.
0: It's 26 degrees out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's all right. We'll just clear the snow off.
0: Okay. Um, and
1: look at that. My serve's up. This is going great.
0: Roll the Roll the thing. <laughs>
1: Vinyl peeps, I know you're really disappointed. I know you thought, hey, they're going to play tennis. This is going to be awesome. We're not. It's double trouble.
0: So double albums, or or as we learned this morning, maybe triples. (laughs) But albums that are jam-packed, you know, four sides uh, or six, um, when you go through... And look like look at lists on the internet, they just keep coming. They keep they, popping up.
1: They're endless. And I think what's really set because you know, the first double albums didn't come out until the late sixties. Mm-hmm. And we didn't bring that one. Blonde on Blonde, the Bob first Dillon.
0: That's supposed to be like everybody recognizes that as like the first double album, at least in pop music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And double albums have always been a big thing on anthologies and greatest hits and live albums.
0: Most live albums are doubles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I didn't, I have a bunch of live in here, but I didn't bring the one that supposedly, this is a joke from Wayne's world. Supposedly everybody from uh, the suburbs was given a copy of Frampton live.
0: (laughs) Comes alive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: That was like part of your uh, induction into the suburbs. Here's your Frampton <laughs> Comes Alive.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, Frampton Comes Alive came out after Kiss Alive. It's, it's just how, in, how insane is it that live albums picked up so much steam in the 70s? And, and that one is probably as big a reason for that popularity as, as anything else because yeah. that was all over the radio and it kind of still is.
1: It really is. And it, you know, as big of a hit as it was in the US, people in Europe don't even really, Frampton is not somebody who's on their radar. That's interesting. Well, maybe as an artist, but that album is not like everybody doesn't have it. Yeah.
0: I mean, a lot of bands were saved by the live album. Kiss. Kiss is one great example of it. And, you know, through their career, they've added to those the live albums. We may or may not talk about another one today. <laughs> um, but Kiss had three studio records and really hadn't hit anything out of the park with it. Dress to Kill was the third. That's the one that has the the studio version of Rock and Roll All Night on it, which is great, which is a great song and a great version of that song. that song really didn't become a hit until alive was released with the live version of that song. And, um, it, you know, that changed everything for kiss that set kiss on its course, you know?
1: Yeah. As a bunch of double albums have done, they've just in the seventies, it exploded. It was a, just a format that everybody liked. And there's a, there's a bunch we haven't, we don't have, should yeah. we talk about some of the hitters that we're not going to hear about? Well,
0: we're not going to hear about Quadrophenia because that that kind of checks a few boxes. That's that's sort of a rock opera plus double or triple yeah. album. But as far as, like, everybody thinks of Pink Floyd immediately when, when yeah. you talk about concept records.
1: And The Wall, I love The Wall. And... It's one that I'm not going to talk about today. Just well, because we, we've talked about it so much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I intentionally, I mean, at first I was worried about having enough of these, but then I intentionally like didn't bring certain things that I've talked about before because yeah. I, I like talking about new stuff. Yeah. It's
1: fun to talk about new stuff and stuff like the river, which we've talked about. I, I will still talk about some that I've talked about, but. You know, I left the river off. I left Being There by Wilco, Mm. which there's an interesting fact about that. Wilco priced Being There as a single album, not as a double. Interesting. Because the agreement that uh, Tweedy had with uh, the record company.
0: No kidding. Yeah. Huh. I had no idea. The Jayhawks, speaking of the Americana type stuff, have never put a double album out. I don't think. Really? Well, I'm pretty sure because I have all of them and yeah. not <laughs> none of them are double. And what is the distinction? Because there are a lot of albums that are two records, may not exactly be a double album.
1: Yeah. Well, the the CD era kind of fungued everything with the double album because <laughs> CDs would hold so much more information, yeah. like
0: twice as much. Yeah
1: that um it just when the vinyl craze then kicked back in and they wanted to re-release all this stuff that was maybe only a CD release they had to do double albums
0: yeah yep well what's your uh, what's your first example you want to talk about well get rid of our this is a single album but it could be a double Very true. We've done enough of these episodes. We could do some quadruple albums. (laughs) Some quads. Quads. Have a quad (laughs) album done in quad. What's your first?
1: My first. Oh, yes. ELO, Out of the Blue. And uh, this was the seventh album by ELO, and it came out in 77. And Jeff Lynn, this is probably... Well, it is their biggest commercial success. Yeah.
0: It's just chock full of hits.
1: Yeah. It's really... Are they on the back? Yes. yes. It's really a... It's almost a greatest hits.
0: I have a picture disc version of this that my mother got me for Christmas a few years ago. It's pretty cool.
1: That that would be a fun one to put on the wall. Yeah. Pick. I, I always love their artwork. Yeah.
0: This, it, every time I see this, I'd, I would think of the um, game Simon. Oh, remember. yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to play that sometime. And yeah, just set it here in the middle. That, that's how we'll figure out what we pick.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, of course, playing Simon uh, is a way to communicate with aliens. Speaking yes. of aliens, we're talking about ELO and Turn to Stone, It's Over, Sweet Talking Woman, Across the Board. I mean, we don't need to go through all 20 songs on yeah, this. Yeah, because
1: there's some phenomenal songs yeah. on this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great record.
1: It really is. It sold 10 million copies worldwide. Wow. It's a lot.
0: Yeah. Jeff Lynn is just underappreciated. Yeah,
1: and, and they're a band that I haven't seen that I regret.
0: I think they did a tour. I think it was 19, and the closest it it was probably billed. Detroit. No, well, Columbus. Columbus. They're probably about yeah. the same distance. Um, but it was billed as is Jeff Lynn's ELO. yeah for that tour and that album for, I know that there were some like key members that were on the first couple albums that ended up leaving the band. And yeah. I don't know if there was kind of in. I mean, As long as Jeff there. Lynn's there, it's ELO. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But just when you listen to these songs, the way they're recorded, there is so much Beatles influence oh. in techniques and, you know, what they did with vocals and stuff. He and- was obviously a student of all of And that. he
1: made no secret about it. Right.
0: And it's just so cool because, you know, a lot of times when someone is, I would call it imitating their heroes, sometimes that falls flat. But yeah. this music is timeless. And then you have like the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack that has just, you know, brought ELO back yeah. with a vengeance. So that's a good one, man. I really, I, this is going to drive Keith nuts. We won't do this with all these, but the... Uh,
1: oh, yeah. We got to see this one.
0: Yeah, it's kind of... Because that's
1: the beam me up.
0: Yeah, this is kind of like the bridge of the spaceship. And it's it's just very cool. Yeah. Kind of reminds me, it's kind of in line with the Boston type. Yeah, artwork. it really is. Yeah. That's a great one.
1: Yeah, I I love ELO. I, I never, too. I never get sick of hearing them.
0: Yeah, and I loving the Wilburys the way I do, I, every time I listen to them, I, you know, they feature different singers in each songs and some, some of their songs have multiple lead right. singers. But man, when Jeff Lyn's voice, when Jeff Lynn's voice comes in, it's like, it, it just clicks. Yeah. And I, I really love the guy as a musician, as a producer, you know, he, he produced the stuff with the Beatles back in the. Oh, yeah in the uh, anthology era so i think he he produced albums for each beatles member uh, except for john so he did one for Ringo, one for george and one for paul
1: yeah so to say he was a super fan is an understatement right
0: that's a good one man <laughs> that kicks us off that kicks us off i'm it's gonna it's gonna
1: fly away spaceship's <laughs> flying away
0: <laughs> i'm going with I was telling the dudes, I bought this probably six or seven years ago for like 17 bucks at a record show. I don't know what it's worth now. I don't really care. But uh, I never even had this on CD.
1: Oh, really? Because
0: I, I was not a fan. A fan. And, and this isn't to talk. I mean, I wanted to talk about Guns N' Roses because, you know, their second record that they put out was a double, double album basically and it's it's just strange the way that that band always operated so after all of that stuff this is their technically i think their third studio lp
1: yeah that but took forever to come out took many
0: years like 13 years and this is post everybody except for axel it, you know, after all of the original members left, there was like a revolving door of musicians that came in and helped him write. Um, Mike Clink didn't produce this. this. is the first studio album of theirs that he didn't produce. There was just a lot of tumult and turmoil in the Guns N' Roses world for a long time. And and this became a joke because, you know, he had announced what the what the title of the album was going to be, <laughs> and and then it didn't come out for almost 13 years, so... And I think I had heard at one point that Offspring, that their new album coming out, they were going to call Chinese Democracy.
1: <laughs> That's made, awesome. They
0: made that announcement, and I there must have been legal stuff between yeah. Axel and them.
1: Uh, I've always loved this cover. The cover, it has a bicycle, of course. Right. With the giant basket. Yeah. Their,
0: their art is always a big thing. Obviously, yeah. ap- Appetite had a different an alternative cover originally that was not safe for work or (laughs) retail. But I, I wanted to bring this because this was an example of, I had never seen it at a show. And as soon as I did, this is one of the times that I was like, yes, I'm buying that because I,
1: you know, it's funny you say that. I don't think I've ever seen this at a show either
0: since then. Yeah. yeah, like this like I said 6 years ago I think is about when I bought it. But it was one of those that you know you're just flipping through and and we all have those lists of things that we want to get that sometimes we call back to, sometimes we ignore. And as soon as I saw it, I'm like it's time. Yeah, I got to have this. Yeah. I'm I'm not necessarily a completist with every artist. And and honestly, Guns N' Roses is would not be a difficult band to be a completist with. You no. Know, they put some EPs out. They put some cover albums out. But really, they only have three studio albums. <laughs> yeah. Over, what, almost 40 years. So, um, yeah, this 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 is one of the most infamous albums probably in the last 25 years.
1: Oh, without a doubt.
0: And for that reason, I had to get it. It's, it's a good catch i like the uh i like the back cover too Ooh, that's
1: good as yeah. well
0: yeah a lot of bunch of babies on a big red chinese star gotta have babies i'm sure there's i'm sure there's a and then there's some chinese writing which my chinese is real rough so i'm not even gonna attempt all right what's next
1: all right next on hit parade is this album is probably It's for sure one of my favorite albums of all time. Mm, And when I say one of, it falls in the hundred, the top 100. But I love this album. Tusk. Yeah. I know, you know, it's funny with Tusk. I know a lot of people are not big lovers of it, but I just, I love everything about it.
0: It's so funny to me be, that you would like a Fleetwood Mac album that much.
1: And I really, I didn't like anything else by Fleetwood Mac for a long time, mm-hmm. just because they were the enemy. <laughs> but this album, I mean, that song Tusk with the band is just mesmerizing. The USC marching band, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. This was the uh, 12th studio album. Yep. 12th.
0: Man, your first two were cutouts.
1: Cutouts are big. Yeah. I was, yeah, and with some of this older stuff, and this is one, I I think I have a live version of this mm. that's really, really good, because the live version of Tusk is just amazing. Yeah, With, they had the USC marching band. Yeah,
0: when they did the dance, I think in 94, they, yeah. they brought the marching band on to play along, which is cool. Yeah. So this is their 12th. 12th. Twitch. But when you think about it, I mean they were they started in like 1966, 67.
1: Yeah, this came out in 79.
0: Yeah. So if it was 67, that'd be thir- 13 years. Yeah,
1: so they were putting out an album a year. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I I heard Fleetwood Mac on the radio yesterday. And and most of the time if it's Gold Dust Woman or something like that, I I'd, love
1: that song. It's a great song, but I've just heard it so much. I've heard it so much, but the cover by Hole. Oh, oh, I haven't heard that. It's, it's hard to find. It was, on a, it was on a film in maybe one of the uh, uh, Crow films. Oh, okay. Huh. Not the original, but one of the... Subsequent ones? Yeah.
0: No kidding. But what I was going to say was one of the hallmarks, I think, of Fleetwood Mac, the Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks era. Um, oh, Yeah is just the quality of the recordings. They're sonically, they're unbeatable. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, I I liken it sort of to Steely Dan because it's like, you know, uh, just that good. You can hear, there's so much clarity. You can hear the intent of the producers. All the instruments are recorded well. And, and that's, you know, they, they obviously after Rumors, had the budget. Yeah. But it was obviously very important for the band and their whole circle for their stuff to sound that way.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: What else do you like on here?
1: What else do I like on this?
0: I wish this was a gatefold. It's more of like a little
1: Yeah. Sarah was on this. Mm. Not that funny. Think about me. And Sisters of the Moon. And Angel was the sixth. Huh. Uh, single the, so there were a
0: lot of singles six
1: singles one. Huh. that's quite a few yeah and um, some of them were released in 79 and others in 80 huh okay so that tells you how long this thing kind of occupied the, uh, the charts yeah
0: I have an inherited copy of this and I, I just haven't listened to it that often maybe I should give it a shot what do you think
1: I think you do. I think you need to listen. Okay. And uh, during it took them during the making of Tusk, they were in the studio for ten months.
0: It's nothing anymore. Ten
1: months, and they got like twenty songs.
0: (laughs) That ten months doesn't seem like it would be that long for Fleetwood Mac, huh? That's crazy.
1: That's, well. I mean, given that they were pumping out a record before a this, a record a year. Yeah. I mean, even with this, so.
0: And that's an accomplishment too, with all the interesting band dynamics. Yeah, there's a on. lot
1: going on. Yeah. And they'd become like a, a big deal.
0: Yeah, a soap opera within a. Oh yeah. Rock band. Well, that's a good one, man. Cool.
1: Tusk Fleetwood Mac.
0: Cue the band. We'll figure out the deal with the dog so my next one is uh, Jackson's Live and this came out November 11th 1981 on Epic Records it was recorded during the band's North American concert tour in the fall of 81 known as the Triumph Tour the live double album was culled from recordings made on the tour stops in Buffalo Providence, Atlanta, New York City and it would go on to sell over 2 million copies worldwide which is kind of crazy because you don't hear about this live album very well. No. Or very often, but listen to the songs on here. You've got Can You Feel It, Things I Do For You, Off The Wall, Ben, Heartbreak Hotel, She's Out Of My Life, I Want You Back, Never Can Say Goodbye, Got To Be There, I'll Be There, Rock With You, Lovely One, Working Day And Night, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, and Shake Your Body Down To The Ground.
1: That's a That's a – pretty good list. Yeah. And the, the Jacksons, for all intents and purposes, were riding on Michael's success coattails. Yeah. At that point.
0: Yeah. And this is pre thriller. Yeah. Too. So kinda of, kinda of crazy. But uh and there and on the back there you've got Michael standing on his tippy toes and then the individual shots of the guys. But it's it's really great these these R and B live albums, uh Isaac Hayes has put a few out, uh, Barry White, they're really, really great. Oh, yeah. There, there is an energy there that's a different kind of energy than you have, like, with a a rock or a metal band.
1: It's a a dance energy. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I've always loved the Jacksons, and, you know, when I was a kid, I was always drawn to Off the Wall by Michael, so I love that there's a couple songs uh, from that era. But it's just, this was a success for them before Mike. Did I just call him Mike?
1: Mike. <laughs> hey, Mike. Let's go with Mike. Hey,
0: Mike. <laughs> I like that. Come on over, Mike. I got a new monkey you might want to meet.
1: Well, m- Mike liked monkeys. <laughs> he, <did.
0: laughs> he certainly did. I was going to say, <laughs> I don't even know what the hell I was going to say. Um, Should
1: we do a talk about Mike and the monkeys? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I did have a great idea uh, yesterday. My buddy Steve and I go back and forth with new band names, and I thought that it would be cool to have a band called the Munchies. That's like the monkeys, but they're always stoned. <laughs> but then I thought, isn't that what the monkeys is in the first yeah. fucking place? <laughs> you watch that TV show, and it's like, do I need uh, do I need some acid? but I love the monkeys. I'm totally off track here, <laughs> but um yeah, so it's interesting when you consider that this was before he just blew up yeah. and completely changed the entertainment industry. And and it's great to hear because, you know, to be in the Jacksons and then Michael starts his solo career and each of them tried, you know, solo forays, but um they they, they get their due here before he just is everywhere all the time and it's a real it sounds good it's a really good record so i don't know let's see i don't know who produced this
1: and didn't they didn't they come out with uh another live album i'm not sure if it's a double later on like victory i think
0: i think it was after the victory album which was after thriller
1: yeah and they they pushed that in record because I was in a record store working. Yeah, it was. We had hundreds of copies. Yeah, that didn't sell.
0: Produced by the Jacksons, recorded and mixed by Bill Schnee. Like I said, I intentionally grabbed stuff that I haven't talked about before.
1: That's a that's a good one to talk about. And when I
0: was looking stuff up, this would pop up on the double live albums. I'm like, well, shit, I have that one,
1: so I'm gonna yeah. bring it.
0: Yeah, that's a good one.
1: Thanks, man. Nice. And now I'm gonna talk, I've oh, talked gosh. about this one before, but it- It's such a
0: huge record.
1: Outcast, Speaker Box, The Love Below. Mm-hmm. I love this album. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a big R&B guy, but there's something about, and this thing was a massive hit. Yeah. It sold, uh, let's see. I bet
0: it sold 10 million records, hasn't it?
1: Oh, God. it, well, it reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And uh, the hits, the singles from this, came out in two thousand three. Hey ya,
0: uh, was one of them. Right.
1: The first single, which is one you don't even think about, is uh, Ghetto Music. Okay. Then Hey Ya. Uh, mm-hmm. The way you move. Mm-hmm. Roses. Oh yeah. And prototype. Okay. I love the song Roses.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> I remember that one. That one's almost not safe for work. Yeah, yeah.
1: But the the cool thing about this, it was almost two albums. So right. they each got their their due on each album. Yeah, it's each... it
0: really is. Yeah. It's like two different personalities. Yeah,
1: you've got the big boy album. Yeah, and Andre three thousand.
0: Yep, yep. Actually, it's twenty nine ninety nine, but we round up. <laughs> It, did, it didn't it <laughs> didn't land anyway yeah this is this is a really good one and i remember i was working pacers with you back then and their music was on constantly oh, it was yeah. on the you know it was on the television everywhere it was in commercials it was on at pacers games i mean they hey, were, uh, yeah. was
1: played endlessly
0: yeah so it was almost an inescapable album and when albums are inescapable like that you know they've they've struck a nerve
1: yeah and it's it's one of those that although a lot of songs are overplayed from it i still love i don't yeah. it's one of those i don't get i don't know why just because it just really struck a, that nerve with me
0: yeah i mean i got sick of hearing it at the time but it's when something is that all encompassing it, it becomes kind of a time capsule. And yeah. any time you hear it thereafter, it takes you back to that, that time. moment. And I just have to think to myself, oh, remember that time when I had zero dollars ever? <laughs> and, you know, I was drinking every night of the week. and
1: <laughs> You uh, were probably playing in a band at the time. Yeah. Uh, what year was this? 2003.
0: Uh, the end of the band was around then. So, yeah, kind of in that time, yeah, promising local band, uh, not remembering how I got home. Yeah, that kind of thing.): <laughs> <laughs>
1: And he Andre 3000 started recording this using Pro Tools at home. No kidding. yeah,
0: huh. he's a He's quite a dude. He just put out a new record, this new record is like a jazz flute record and it's the first song off of it was like a twenty seven minute song. Wow. Yeah. He had some epiphany about
1: Well, um, he has the money to play now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he's an interesting dude. They're both really talented guys. I I don't think they get along great.
1: Yeah, I get that impression. And well, I mean this kind of sums it up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it it's an interesting I I don't know technique or something when you have a group like kiss did it with the solo albums, you know, but it's very interesting to put out one album. That's basically split down the middle, you know, the Beatles, it was always Lennon McCartney. Yeah. You know, but they didn't write together. So it's, it's an interesting concept for sure. And here's Andre with his, uh, his Jaguar at the, uh, eiffel tower apparently and then big boy has got his uh his records and his dj set up what's in the middle here oh boy there there are some uh interesting photos here oh yeah huh racy yeah i wonder if that's just a regular cigarette or if it's a left-handed cigarette there could be that's cool and that's not an easy one to find
1: No, I think this popped up as a deal, and I'm like, I got to have that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad you got it.
1: Well, I was trying to figure out where, you know, since Hey is the biggest song, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out where that falls on the album. It's
0: Andre. It's...
1: uh, Yeah, so it's on the... uh, Love Below. Love Below. Mm -hmm. And I don't... Oh, there it is. So it's... Pretty right. deep, yeah. It's deep, yeah. Hey, I uh, followed by roses, yeah, and it's right in the middle, <laughs> which is crazy,
0: yeah, for a song that big, yeah. But I, I don't think you can anticipate a song becoming that big. No, you know what I mean. You release it, yeah, as a single, and then it just
1: well, and that's voice. one of the reasons ghetto music is the uh, the first release or the first song on Speaker Box.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, my next one <laughs> is technically a triple, and I uh, I got this before they did the 50th anniversary re-release where they had a new mix of it and stuff. I, look, I've got my dark horse
1: nice
0: uh, square hype sticker in there still. So all things must pass until this morning. I thought that it was George's second record, but it's actually his third. And we learned a little about that today. But all things must pass when you... When <laughs> I'll hold it. Okay. When you think about it, I mean, a lot of these songs were songs that he submitted to the Beatles that were subsequently brushed aside by Lennon McCartney. And uh, he had quite a cadre of music to be able to put out. And this is really his his first solo album. Uh, Phil Spector, who was working on Beatles stuff is the guy that actually produced this originally. And really um I really want to get that new version because it's a little un it's despectered and you know less less of the wall of sound and the horns and stuff and you know maybe bringing George a little bit to the fore, but
1: and I think for this one that makes a lot of sense because this is really George being George, and you want to hear George singing, and you want to hear his guitar. You don't want to hear a bunch of other stuff.
0: Yeah, and Phil Spector, just unbelievable producer, changed the sound of pop music, you know, in the 60s. But I, I, I think this was kind of the tail end there, and you can't—I don't think you can apply that kind of production to just any music, and I True. I love these songs. I don't necessarily love the way... The mix. Yeah, or the way Phil kind of took care of them, but I feel that way about some of the Beatles stuff he did too. Um, but this was released in November of 1970, and his first solo work after the breakup of the Beatles, it includes My Sweet Lord, What is Life, Isn't It a Pity, and All Things Must Pass. Um, My My Sweet Lord, They're they're you know, it was a controversy with that too, that I think he ended up having to pay uh, for plagiarism. But um, like Keith said, before we started, I mean, there's a lot of that throughout the Beatles catalog as well. And when you're talking about people who are as famous as they are making as much music as they are listening to as much music as they are, I think there's going to be a little, you know, crossover.
1: Yeah. And in, they're, Th- their attitude was we're the beatles <laughs>
0: <laughs> but this is technically a uh, a triple album so i'm i'm going one more that's than, okay then just double but i i guess and i had never thought of it but the the four gnomes on the front i guess there's a the thought that this picture is an intentional statement of the four gnomes kind of being uh the Beatles less important, and him sitting up. I I never would have, in all the times that I've looked at the artwork from this, I never thought about that. I knew he loved gardening, and that was one of his huge pastimes. But I I never looked at this picture that way before. But that's that's a very interesting uh, way to look at it. But yeah, it's a it's a great album and a great statement, and it, and it I think what it says more than anything. Is this guy was held back a little bit?
1: Oh yeah, without and, a doubt.
0: And you know, you if your first album, really your first pop album, is released and it's a triple, that, that's, that's there's a lot else. of
1: music in the yeah in the suitcase that you want to put out <laughs> yeah,
0: for sure. What's next?
1: Next up on my list.
0: Oh, sorry, I just dropped the.
1: Uh, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Nice. And uh, this was their first release, and it was Up From Below. Mm -hmm. And the song that I think the masses will know is Home. Mm -hmm. And at the time, NPR was doing these first listens Mm -hmm. on their website. And so they'd have an album out for about a week and you could do a first listen of the whole thing and I played that every day for doing the first listen for probably you know the the whole time it was out maybe awesome. even twice
0: that's a cool feature but for
1: sure. I fell in love with these guys I yeah. just loved everything about them and yeah I don't know why when they re-released it they decided to emboss remastered at the top <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's an just, interesting choice. Yeah, it seems and it, so bizarre. And
0: it, th- it's bizarre, too, because they put it on this this photo on the back. Yeah,
1: I don't know why they did that.
0: Maybe so that if you bought it used, you would know that it's not the original,
1: maybe? Could be. Or maybe it's a record company deal. It could be.
0: Who it's, knows? It's an odd choice. Yeah.
1: And it, this thing came out on july 4th 2013 hasn't been that long yeah wow and uh it did it wasn't a massive seller it sold like three hundred and sixty thousand copies in the u.s it may be more now i i doubt it it's not like one of those things people immediately seek out yeah but they're kind of a. and I, on this tour i saw them at the vogue which on the back you see how many people are in the band right I, I don't know, 15, but to see all those people on a small stage, yeah, (laughs) I mean, it was packed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And it's great to, to catch a band like that, that is kind of on the upswing. Yeah. At a smaller club. At a smaller club. I mean, the Vogue is a pretty decent sized place, but it's definitely different seeing them there than it is at a shed. Yeah. At one of the amphitheaters outdoor.
1: And, uh, they, uh, They're kind of a, I don't know how would I describe. They're like a hippie stoner band. Yeah. Alex Ebert is the lead singer, and they would wear. I I mean, they traveled in a in a bus. They were very hippie like. Yeah. And uh, definitely
0: the feel you get.
1: Yeah, you get the feel. And uh, he was uh, he'd been through uh, like some rehab, and he started writing the record in rehab. Huh. No
0: kidding, okay, well, I mean, why not <laughs> yeah right
1: they they just had this I mean a sound that you know who who decides in the in twenty thirteen we're gonna put out a you know a hippie band record. It just wasn't a thing that people were into at the time because it was very sixties seventies in the sound,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And it's a very atmospheric record.
0: That's cool. I do love the, the photo on the front. Yeah, I love the I wish there cover. was a big thing that says remastered. Yeah. The,
1: <laughs> the remastered, who knows? That's the mystery that which, we're trying to solve. What uh, record company? It's
0: Vagrant, which is part of BMG. Yes. And that's part of RCA, Yeah, which I believe is part of Sony.
1: Yeah. Columbia.
0: That's cool, man. That's a good one.
1: Uh, they're they're one of those ones that I looked and l- this was hard to find.
0: Mm-hmm. Is this their first? Yeah. Okay. See again, putting out your first record, Chicago did it. Like the first 3 Chicago, maybe 4 Chicago records are doubles or triples. One of them's alive. Yeah. Record. But that's ballsy, man.
1: It is. To well, and Again, it's the CD era. Yeah. So, you know, they were they were aiming for the CD crowd. They had a bunch of songs right. they wanted to talk about, or wanted to wanted the world to hear.
0: We should do a show and discuss, kind of discuss the CD era and the difference in thought when it came to albums between CDs and records. Because yeah. really, once CDs became as big as they did, I mean bands were just loading them up with songs because they had the space they had the space you know you had 23 minutes 22 minutes on each side of a record at 33 and a third and uh that's that's going to limit your choices
1: yeah that's that's one of the like in the 2000s there are a lot of things that are double albums just because that was the cd era and why not yeah
0: yeah well that's a good one man
1: yeah i i love this band cool This is a
0: little band from New York City. You Just guys, a little band. You guys may have heard of them. Kiss Alive 2. This came out in 1977, October 14th to be exact. And the singles from this were Shout It Out Loud and Rocket Ride. And then the, really the, the cool thing about this is the fourth side, the first three sides are live. And the fourth side is all studio stuff, new su- new studio songs, and the songs on that fourth side are "All American Man," "Rockin' in the USA," "Larger Than Life," "Rocket Ride," the studio version in any way you want it. And man, those uh, those studio songs on this are, are really great because you know they kind of gone to the well with the first Alive, so they couldn't repeat those songs on this, but. This, as far as their live records, this is my favorite. I mean, they are just absolutely on fire at this point. This is really right before that pinnacle that they reached where, you know, I I was too young to know it. You were probably just the right age, but at that point they were everywhere making TV movies, really starting to release the toys and all the marketing and stuff that they did, and um, you know, it's it, it's it's catching a band at, at at its highest point. And I've always loved the art on here, the the colors, and then the individual pictures. It's very cool. And then the pics on the back. If you really start digging into it, live records are not always live. Probably. Over half the time or not. Yeah. Because when you think about it, and I was going to talk about this when we were kind of talking about Frampton. If you think about it, recording at the time didn't have the ability to isolate the guitar amps from what you were recording on the drums and then the vocal and stuff. So everything kind of bleeds together. Now you do have the ability to separate that stuff as you record it so it's a totally different thing but you know what you would end up with if you had to do a lot of editing or had to you know m- mix different performances together is a lot of bleed through from the instruments so yeah a lot a lot of the live albums that we love were probably very much touched up
1: manufactured live in the studio yeah. <laughs> to sound live after
0: the fact and this is still when they were with Casablanca and Rocksteady and uh yeah I just this this is the one to go with as far as I'm concerned and this is my Japanese white label promo version of this it doesn't have the OBI strip and it doesn't have it all the goodies inside it came with tattoos
1: and and this is not an easy one to find either
0: not new. I mean, I... I, I even
1: a re- repress of it yeah. is even used. You don't see it a lot.
0: No, I think when people get alive too, they keep it. Yeah. So it, it shows. I mean, I saw... The, I got this from Crossroads probably eight years ago. And uh, our our friend with all the Japanese... No, actually, was it him? I can't remember who I got it from. But he was selling it because it didn't have the in, the goodies inside and the OBI on it. But, yeah. I love it. It's, it's a great one.
1: I'm, I'm probably going to go home and listen to this later. That'll be a good one to close out the afternoon. Oh, absolutely. Well, before I move on, I screwed up. Oh, no. Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Actually, this album was their first, but it came out in 2011. No. It came out in two
0: thousand nine. Oh, okay. Huh. It Was released. Yeah, that, that makes more sense. Yeah,
1: January seven or July seventh. Okay. Two thousand nine. I don't know why where I came up with the July fourth. I saw that somewhere. Or else. thirteen.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It must be the headband. It's. It could be reducing it's circulation.
1: Reducing <laughs> circulation, and I'm messing. Anyhow, so <laughs> we screw up a lot, but. This one I could fix. Yeah, he caught it. Uh,
0: most of the time, if, if there's any screw-up, we can just copy-paste and boom, it's taken care of. I knew you were going to bring this record. Yes. I don't have it. I've never bought it.
1: I get confused which side's which. Here we go.
0: That's upside down. That's upside
1: down. This there, is it. There we go. Mm-hmm. The name of the band is The Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. And this was their first live album. And a lot of people say... uh Stop making sense is better. Mm-hmm. I disagree. Yeah. Well this, this this is their best live album. This is earlier. Yeah. It's, and
0: really before they had that opportunity to be affected by all that success. It really is a, a great encapsulation of of them live.
1: Yeah, and this came out in nineteen eighty two, March twenty fourth. So the beginning of the, well, in the spring of that year.
0: Yeah. So five years after they really kind of took the music industry by storm.
1: They are such a
0: strange band. They really are. So off the beaten path. Such an interesting collection of people. They were all RISD students. Rhode Island School of Design and Engineering, I think is. Yeah. And um, yeah, they just got together and started playing.
1: And this is live stuff from seventy seven to seventy nine. Yeah. So even though it came out in eighty two, it's older live stuff.
0: Right. I just I I love these guys. I I know that they're kind of a, a one of those bands that people are either love or hate. There's there's not a lot oh, of Oh really
1: them. they're haters? Well oh yeah,
0: I've 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 heard a lot of people. Because I think it's it it is a foray into the art rock world, right? Okay. And I think that it's so different that to some people's ears, they just don't pick up on it. I, I've always loved them. I mean, it, you know, when you hear something like that that's so foreign that you've not heard before, it's kind of scary. Like I remember seeing Gary Newman on Saturday Night Live when I was very young. <laughs> it's frightening. And he scared the hell out of me because that <laughs> that's not pop music like you've heard no. before. And these guys, I think, fall into that same category. Oh, without a doubt. I, I love the fact that David Byrne is always doing something different, and I just when you hear the Talking Heads, you know it's the Talking Heads.
1: And I bought this in Spain. There you see.
0: No, it's upside down. Well, but but the stickers, the stickers right there. So.
1: <laughs> Fifteen euros, euros, sorry. and so the second side is eighty to eighty-one or eighty-one. So it's basically 77 to 81.
0: Cool. Yeah, and you see how the band gets a little bigger.
1: Yeah, it gets bigger, and it changed in the 80s versus the 70s. Yeah,
0: more percussion. Yeah. Very percussion-oriented. That's a good one. And this is one that has popped up a lot. I like this. You got the Germany and France thing down here.
1: Yeah, and I haven't even... Totally looked at the. It's fun to buy stuff in another country, yeah. Just to see the difference, absolutely. And it was a used copy, so really in Spain was the first time I'd seen one used in the wild.
0: I think I saw one at the most recent.
1: It's Crossroads. popping up a lot more now because but this of the was release Yeah, this was in twenty twenty. Yeah. When I got it.
0: Yeah, that's great, man. Good one.
1: Yeah. Had to bring this one.
0: So you had to go rescue your daughter, and you rescued a Talking Heads record on the same trip. Well, I'm going to talk about one. We have talked about this before.
1: But it's such a good album.
0: It is amazing how much music there is on this. I mean, it's two records, four sides, just basically every hit from the disco era, and... This came out in 1977, and there were a lot of hits from this. How Deep Is Your Love, More Than a Woman, Staying Alive, If I Can't Have You, Night Fever, Boogie Shoes, which is Casey and the Sunshine Band, uh, More Than a Woman, and Manhattan Skyline. So there were eight singles released from this soundtrack. That's few and you know most of these are written by uh Barry Gibb and the Bee Gees but this this was one this was one of the first records that i just listened to all the time when i was a kid and i still have the half, half price books sticker on here a buck this half price books took this in to their inventory in october of 2007 and i got it for 98 cents <laughs>
1: One American dollar,
0: less than one American dollar, and we don't have to, you know, go too far into this. The movie, when I saw this movie as a kid, I didn't really appreciate it for what it was. So that kind of like messed with my idea of it. I need to watch the movie again. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah,
1: it's been a bit for me.
0: Yeah, but it's such an important record for so many people. I this, I don't even know how many this is sold, but I bet it's diamond. I bet they've at least sold 10 million.
1: When I saw the film, I was in middle school and at that time you could get into theaters. They'd sell you a ticket. You just, they didn't care how old you were, even though it was an R rated film. Yeah. And, uh, I remember seeing it and just being kind of blown away. And I didn't even like disco, but I love this movie. This
0: um, was nominated for record of the year. It was nominated for song of the year for staying alive. Record of the year was also what it was nominated for staying alive. Uh, best pop vocal performance by a duo group or chorus Saturday night fever. Bee Gees. They won that best arrangement for voices. They won that producer of the year, Barry Gibb, Morris Gibb, Robin Gibb, uh, and a couple other dudes <laughs> that we don't know. Uh, Grammy it got a Grammy Awards Hall of Fame Grammy in 2004. It was the movie was nominated for the National Film Preservation Board. Um, this this is just a huge.
1: Yeah, the list of accolades goes on and on. It's
0: a huge slice of, like, pop culture, um, a huge slice of life from the yeah. 70s.
1: And the good thing with vinyl, there are a, a metric shit ton of these <laughs> in the wild. Yeah, there are. There and are. the best thing is you most of them are not well, well used. Mm-mm. So you can pick this up for under ten bucks, even in today's market, used, and the copies are going to be almost mint.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good one, and um, you know, uh, another one from the same era, Greece, is the same way. Oh, yeah, just everywhere, all the time, all encompassing, just became such a huge thing, and um, like we've talked about the. We've talked about the John Travolta 3B. You had Grease, you had Saturday Night Fever, and then Urban Cowboy ushers in yeah. like the outlaw country movement from the early 80s. And-, and
1: one thing we haven't even talked about is in films how— and, and the soundtrack has a lot to do with it, but in films how this spawned a whole changing of the guard in the U.S. of the way—I mean, people were all in on disco— when this came out. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I mean, this look.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Became part of American culture. Absolutely.
0: I mean, huge part of the pop culture. But the other thing that you. This was really a, the first time a film like this integrated the music the way that it did. If you watch Quentin Tarantino and the way that he weaves music in or any television show. Yeah. Nowadays, Music has become such a huge part of the way that films and television shows are presented and put together. And, and you know, the, the music a lot of times feels like it's part, part of the narrative. I mean, it's this film changed a lot. Yeah, it that, really did. Regard. And uh, it, it's one of those that I listened to all the time as a kid. So I I didn't only scratch the hell out of my mom's Beatles records, Mr. Russell, but I scratched the hell out of our original version of Saturday Night Fever. What's your next one? Yeah, I can't. I can't do any. I I can't dance. (laughs) And if I were to try to, it would be an embarrassment. What's your next one? Well,
1: the next, and this is an interesting album, Cream, Wheels of Fire. Oh, yes. um. It's interesting because it came out in sixty eight but it was released like one side is studio and or one album is studio and the other is live. live. Well, then it was released as a single live or single studio and a single live. No kidding. Yeah.
0: Huh. I didn't know that.
1: But when it originally came out, it came out as a double. Double.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. Cream is so important but we're around for such a short period of time, you know. I'm gonna open this up because I love the gatefold in this. It's yeah. just
1: yeah. Should this is when you should if you have psychedelics, <laughs> take them now.
0: <laughs> I didn't realize this was on RSO records. I believe our previous album was also RSO.
1: Yep. It was. Yeah. Look at that. An RSO double, and we have a little spaceship, so we have another theme running through this show. Yeah,
0: I like the artwork on this. I I
1: loved, have... I've i always loved the artwork. Yeah,
0: I mean, it was smack dab, and what year was this? Sixty-eight. 68, okay. Yeah, smack dab in the middle of the psychedelic era, and their artwork definitely shows in that, but let's look at this. It's White Room sitting on top of the world, passing the time. Those were the days born under a bad sign deserted cities of the heart crossroads spoonful train time toad. Yeah. And this was their 3rd album. Yep. That's a great one. I
1: I don't think I have any Cream. I I may have uh I may have another one but this is the one I really wanted cuz I really, really, really like this album. Yeah. It's such a great
0: band. Yeah. I mean, obviously fraught with issues, be it, you know, chemicals or personality, uh, problems, all of that stuff. But they, they were kind of like one of the original super groups, you know? Oh yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, side three, which kicks off the live set. So it starts with Crossroads. And then it goes into spoonful, yeah, and spoonful it clocks in at sixteen minutes and forty seven seconds. Knew, I
0: knew it was like over fifteen minutes long. Yeah,
1: so that's a that's a long song. And I I don't know what it is about some of these jam songs, but I just love them. Yeah, I it's, mean it, it's not something I want to put on all the time, but it's good. It's like my my version of jazz. Yeah, it's good background.
0: Yeah, and and you know capturing these dudes at the pinnacle of, oh, yeah. of their careers. Uh, just an amazing thing. I mean, when you think about it, Cream existed for, what, four years, I think? And, um, you know, uh, with all of the extracurricular crazy stuff that was going on with each of these dudes, I don't think you can expect a band like that to to be around any longer than that. No. and um,
1: And they didn't really get along very well
0: exactly i mean you you have drugs you've got personality problems you've got a a world-class guitarist stealing the wife of another (laughs) world-class musician i mean there's there's a lot going on there but uh, cream is is definitely uncharted territory for me in the vinyl world Uh, i don't even think i have anything of theirs on cd I don't even have Layla and other assorted love songs on vinyl. That's a good one, man. First time we've mentioned Cream.
1: Wheels of Fire.
0: We are talking about new stuff. Songs in the Key of Life. And this is obviously Stevie. We've talked about Stevie a few times. And this came out on September 28, 1976 on Tamla, which is Motown. Uh, label and in, by 1974 Stevie was one of the most successful figures in pop music his previous albums Music of My Mind Talking Book, "Intervisions," and Fulfilling This's first finale which you talked about recently were back to back critical successes um, Wonder seriously considered quitting the music industry after that little run and immigrating to Ghana to aid children with disabilities when his plans for a farewell tour had already begun, Wonder changed his mind and signed a new contract with Motown on august fifth nineteen seventy five This outlined a seven year seven album deal with full artistic control which, that was
1: that was probably the big thing why he was ready to quit the music industry yeah,
0: but for a blind black guy that plays all the music to to have the 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 power. To be able to say it. I'm going to do what I want to do, and y'all aren't going to tell me what I can and can't do. That's huge.
1: And he's getting all these weird faces that he can't see. (laughs) (laughs) You you can think of the record executives. No, 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 no. no.
0: (laughs) This was released as a double LP with a four-song bonus EP. It debuted at number one on the Billboard Pop Albums chart and became only the third album to achieve that feat, and the first by an American artist. Both the lead single, I Wish, and follow-up single, Sir Duke, great song, reach number one on the Billboard Top 100. So we have I Wish, Isn't She Lovely, Sir Duke, Another Star, and As, as the singles. Maybe not everybody is like a Stevie person, but these albums are so energetic and so packed with really great music and he's playing all the damn instruments on him <laughs> yeah. too. It's just it, he's an amazing artist. He's completely underrated, a living legend and he's still around and still touring. I know I know he did a tour like maybe 3 years ago and I didn't go see it. He played at at the Fieldhouse. Oh. And I didn't I didn't go see it. So the next time I get an opportunity, I'm going to go see him. But just one of those dudes that was so before Michael Before Michael became the pop, like power, yeah, that he powerful person that he was, you had Stevie, and um, I just any time I see something of his that I don't have at a show, I snap it up.
1: Yeah, and that's another. I hate to keep talking about price, but it's important with vinyl. Yeah, and you can pick any of his stuff up for a reasonable price. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's not something that's they're gonna.
1: It's know. not jack through the roof. No, Stevie, he's a wonder.
0: He is a wonder.
1: What's your next one? The Almond Brothers, live at the Fillmore, or Almond Brothers at the Fillmore East. Oh yeah, yeah. And I just picked this up on the uh, like we are vinyl. They have these big sales around Christmas. Yeah. Once again, here I go on price. Oh,
0: yeah, because you never had this, because I've, I've no. talked about this before. This is such a good record. And there's there's like an extended like box set version of this, because they played—I I can't remember how many times they played, how many nights they played when they recorded this,
1: but— uh, I'll see if I can find that. What? When did it come out? 70— 71. One. July 6th. July is a big release time. Yeah, right in the middle of
0: summer, man. Yeah. And— You know, the Almond Brothers band is also, I think, underrated, kind of forgotten about. You know, when you think of jam bands that have come to prominence, the first and foremost is Grateful Dead. Then you have, um, you know, Fish, Dave Matthews, these guys— were also a jam band. I mean, they can play these incredible songs that, that they put on their albums, but they can play very long versions yeah. of them. And when Dwayne Allman is playing guitar, let him play.
1: Yeah. Let him go. <laughs> this was their third release. And, uh, the Fillmore East was ran by Bill Graham, mm-hmm. who, if you've heard any stories, yeah. he was a maniac. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I have always loved the cover and, and the way that this album looks. I oh, mean, yeah. The road cases. The road cases. And obviously, they're, they're there posing. And the one that they chose to put on the cover is the one where they're all just cracking up about something. Yeah, that, they're having fun. That has always been an endearing part of, of this record, as far as I'm concerned. It is lightning in a bottle for a band at the top of their powers
1: one thing we don't talk about much with doubles but most of them are gatefold Mm -hmm. i love gatefold. i do
0: too i even prefer single albums to be gatefolds
1: (laughs) yeah it just
0: yeah and you got some live shots from from them playing
1: just so good side four is only the whipping post whipping post
0: how long is it is it like a 17 minute version of it I can't remember. No, twenty-two, it's 22 minutes forty. 40.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Eat a peach. Eat a peach was a double as well.
0: Yeah, that's a good one, and it, and it's absolutely an essential. I think.
1: Yeah, it's it's phenomenal.
0: Yep. Well, you said you weren't going to talk about this one. I had to bring it.
1: Oh, good.
0: The river by Bruce. And this, I believe this is his first album without the, the E Street Band moniker. This, his fifth studio album, released on October 17th, 1980 on Columbia. It's his only double album. The River was produced by John Landau, Springsteen, and bandmate Stephen Van Zandt. It was Springsteen's first to reach number one on Billboard top LPs and tape Chart. And spent four weeks at the top of the charts. It received critical acclaim, and the title track was nominated for Best Rock Vocal Performance at the 1982 Grammy Awards. So the songs from this that were singles, listen to this. Hungry Heart, Fade Away, Sherry Darling, The River, Cadillac Ranch, Point Break, and I Want to Marry You. So there's seven singles on this record. Um,
1: That's quite a few. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's sort of a gateway into his future writing. Um, This was after Darkness on the Edge of Town. It was made during a recession, so hard times for people. And uh, its title song is a song that he wrote for his brother-in-law and sister. And um, it's it's a really good listen. It's just just like a hairpin turn from the rest of the yeah. E street band stuff. And I, this is actually an inherited one that I got from my wife's aunt and uncle. And I love the, the little wedding picture on the back too. But you know, Bruce, it, he's, he's one of the people that like, as far as American <laughs> artists, you know, he's right up there. In most people's minds, with like Dylan, you know, like the songwriter type of dude, and I think he deserves to be. Oh yeah! And it, by no means do I think all of his stuff is is great, amazing, but but he definitely there's at least one or two tunes on each of his records that I think are just really, really great.
1: I have a lot of Bruce stuff, and uh, I do have his his box set. The live box Live
0: 75 to 85. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it's, is it a five records, four records? Four or five. There was a lot of his stuff I didn't have. I had, I think I had uh, um, Born in the USA because it was a Columbia House record. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's kind of like
0: the blue collar American poet guy. And um, that's,
1: that's his elevator pitch. Yeah. And he is. Without a doubt, an American music icon. Yeah. All right. Next up, Nine Inch Nails, "The Downward Spiral." This is a big one. Yes, this this was really the one that sent them into the the stratosphere. Ninety four. Okay. March eight.
0: Yeah. I worked at a record store at the time. It was a big deal. I, to be completely honest, I was not a Nine Inch Nails. And I'm still not a huge Nine Inch Nails fan. Uh, I like Pretty Hate Machine. That's like, yeah. When I when I in in hindsight I listen back to that and that really strikes a nerve with me. But this this was huge at the time.
1: Yeah, it's it's regarded as one of the uh, one of the most important albums of the '90s.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I've always loved the the way it looks.
1: Very Spartan, yeah. Cover, yeah. But yeah. I mean, it was kind of there. It was kind of Trent. I say they. It's really Trent. Mm-hmm. And then a gatefold, but who knows what that is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I could see when these guys became popular. I could see you having almost been a fan from the beginning.
1: Oh yeah, I, and I was lucky enough to see at the '89 Lola at Nine Inch oh, Nails. Oh okay. And that was Pretty Hate Machine, which Oh yeah. I was Pretty Hate Machine's a lot more industrial. It is. More gothic and it checked every single box for me.
0: Yeah. I mean they I kind of you know, the goth type stuff that you're into, I look at this as like heavy goth, like almost a heavy metal version. Yeah. Of that. And because it just so extreme. Uh, you know, taking stuff that craft work and ministry and and all those bands before them did, and just turning it on, it's amping weird. it up. Yeah, yeah, very, very cool. Not something I can listen to all the time, but you know, sometimes when you need to get pumped up, a good nine inch nail song is, is.
1: Yeah, it's, and I think that's a a good analogy. It's like heavy metal meets industrial.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I, I just remember these flying off the freaking shelves when I worked at the record store. And and it was just kind of crazy to me because um, what was the first single? Was it? March of the Pigs. March of the Pigs. And and then, oh, and then Closer. And
1: then Closer. Closer is yeah. the one that really, really blew up.
0: Yeah. That was a cool thing about working at a record store at the time because as a music fan, that's one angle, but then you really get an idea for what people are really like grabbing onto, when, yeah. you, when you sell them, you know, thousands of copies of something.
1: It's a concept album detailing the self-destruction of a man from the beginning of his uh, the beginning of his downward spiral to his suicidal breaking point. Hmm. So it's heavy. Heavy. <laughs> and yeah. deep. You know, to think about that, and that this album was a commercial success, you're kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> it reached number two on the U.S. album charts. That's crazy to me. I mean, to th- <laughs> it is. It kind of blows me away. It's, I think it's a
0: diamond. I think it's sold 10 million yeah, copies. Or...
1: Well, when you reach number two, got to be up there. Yeah. Well, here, here's certificate. Let me get to my certifications page.
0: Yes. We don't want to leave any stone unturned.
1: So in the U.S., it's four times platinum, four million. I bet it's more than that by. Yeah, now. by now it's got to be more than that.
0: Because artists, I believe, have to pay for recertifications of stuff like that. Oh, do they? Yeah, because that expense of of finding out how many uh, copies of something it has sold. I mean, that expense falls to the artist. So a lot of these numbers can be from ten. 15 years ago, just because those artists don't want to pay to have that done.
1: Yeah, and Nine Inch Nails was, although they were a world phenomenon, they were really a U.S. phenomenon. Because if you look at, you know, what the other sales are across the world, Canada, only 300,000, only 300,000 copies. Yeah. The U.K., 100,000. Well,
0: I also think that that association with Lollapalooza, Lollapalooza is a distinctly American festival yeah. and I think that that's part of it if they were doing Lollapaloozas in Germany or you know the UK I think that they would have sold a lot more records there too. Yeah. Yeah. But, that's a good one man.
1: Yeah and and I don't know how how grunge took off on the across the world but I know in the US it just took over music.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All Next right. up. All right. It's Rush's Exit Stage Left. This was released in October 1981 on Anthem Records. And this is after touring in support of their eighth record, Moving Pictures. The band gathered recordings made over the previous two years and constructed a live release from them with producer Terry Brown. It features recordings from June 1980 on the Permanent Waves tour and from March 1981 on the Moving Pictures tour. So... The big live versions on this record were "Tom Sawyer" and "Closer to the Heart." I uh, I really love this this live album because yeah I I know that that Getty's voice is take take it or leave it by a lot of folks, but this is a point at which you know they'd been together for seven years and his po- his voice kind of settled in, so he could still hit those stratospheric notes, but sing them with a little more gravitas and control than he had before and when it comes to live bands I mean if you never got a chance to see Rush you missed out I mean there's one of the great things that they did was every couple of years they recorded a live record and usually did a video release of it and this this is a great one I mean when I was, when I was young and in, in marching band and playing drums and stuff if, I mean you had to be a rush fan because Neil Peart was the, the guy that played the drums. And I love the, the back here cause you, they kind of uh, implement little pieces of each album art into the artwork on this. So
1: they're a, uh, they're a legendary live band. And so what's the longest song on this?
0: Oh boy. You would ask. me. Yeah, I? I would ask. I'll Let's give you time see. to the find the longest it. song on here is Xanadu and that's 1209. Xanadu is from 2112. Spirit of Radio, five minutes. Red Barchetta, seven minutes. YYZ, almost eight minutes. I guess Passage to Bangkok is 345.
1: But you expect that with a band like Rush, that e- yeah. even on their studio releases, they had some really, really long songs. Yeah.
0: Closer to the Heart is a little over three minutes. Beneath, Between, and Beyond. Two and a half minutes. So I, I guess you have a little uh, mixture of each. And, and this, the fourth side of this ends with La Villa Strangiato, which is a great instrumental. That's another thing that on almost every album, studio album, they would do an instrumental, which you don't get that very often No, anymore. no.
1: I love The Owl. Yeah. The Owl's my favorite part. Yeah,
0: that's pretty awesome. And Rush is... Neil, I think, has been gone for three years now, three or four years. Um, Rush is one of those bands that there are so many different points in their career, and they put so much out that, you know, you can almost dive in anywhere, and it would be a good place to take off. Yeah.
1: And didn't they tour with Kiss? Yeah. Yeah. They they, (laughs) they opened for Kiss.
0: I think that they played 70 or 80 shows with Kiss over the years. So yeah, they were buddies with Kiss. Yeah. And it's that
1: that's <laughs> that that's a a strange pairing. Yeah, it
0: is a strange pairing. But uh I was lucky that when I was a teenager, uh my parents were cool with me going to any show I could go to. And uh I I got to see Rush probably 8 or 10 times. That's pretty awesome. And uh though I have those memories are huge for me, especially now that, you know, They're no longer a band, but yeah, this is, any of their live albums are pretty great, Um, but this is a really good one, and uh, you should give it a listen. What's next?
1: All right, my next one, we're going to keep it alternative, Sonic Youth, Daydream Nation. Nice. And my true confession on this is, I've got some Sonic Youth early albums that uh, I just didn't really love them. Mm -hmm. It just, for whatever reason, they, it was one of those bands I thought I should love. They were,
0: they are still a band that people almost come out, come at you with the, well, you don't like Sonic Youth? You know, it's almost something that you're supposed to like.
1: Yeah. And a, a lot of people in alternative music are like, you don't like Sonic Youth? Yeah. So I, for whatever reason, a song kept popping up on my playlist, a a digital playlist, and I'm like, I really like that song. Mm -hmm. Did you know it was them? I knew it was them. Yeah. I just didn't have it, and I'm like, I got to get Daydream Nation.
0: Yeah. When did this come out? Is that what you're looking at?
1: 88.
0: 88. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. So it was... When I was still buying a lot of vinyl, mm-hmm. but the first couple albums I had from them just did not really strike a chord. So yeah. I kind of just, eh.
0: Yeah. That surprises me. Yeah. Because they, they are one of the bands that I would have expected you to just be all in on.
1: This was their fifth studio album. Okay. And this is, this is probably their best known studio album. Huh. Okay. This is one that falls in a bunch of uh, best record lists.
0: Yeah. I love this picture on the gatefold. That's great.
1: And the song I was thinking of is the second single, mm-hmm. Teenage Riot. Oh, okay. And it I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> it has a uh, a definite alternative feel but just the way it starts Mm -hmm. is just so kind of atmospheric
0: yeah i'll have to check it out there there it was ahead of my time kind of ahead of my generation and it, it it's one of those bands like i said everybody kind of has ordained that everybody should like
1: yeah and maybe that was it i was just resistant yeah i can see that yeah
0: yeah Maybe you were wearing a headband at the time. I
1: could. <laughs> I, I love how how it's generally considered avant rock, mm-hmm. alternative rock, indie rock, art punk, yeah. and post-punk. Yeah, it's pick a lot. Pick one. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Pick a couple. Yeah, pick a couple and you got it. But they uh, they have a real unorthodox guitar tuning sound, mm-hmm. which is kind of throws you for a loop because it's like, wow, that doesn't quite sound right yeah and they've got a a
0: woman in the band which is great you know yeah kim yeah i got to see her uh play with nirvana oh the really rock and roll hall of fame
1: oh that is cool induction yeah. oh yeah
0: yeah it was cool it's uh like i said it it there is so much stuff out there so much music and we we try to present parts of our collection and try not to tread ground that we've gone over. I mean, the r- whole reason we did the deep disc dive on Dark Side of the Moon is because it just gets mentioned sometimes. And this is one more episode when uh, it's going to Yeah, get mentioned. we mentioned it. <laughs> but there is so much out there. And, and the great thing now is that if, 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 if it's a band that you aren't sure about, you can, you can go test it out before you have to plunk down the what... 30 or 40 bucks that this thing probably costs. So that's a good thing. You know, I feel like I'm glad that we grew up without the internet and without social media and all of that stuff. But as a music lover in those days, man, wouldn't it have been cool to be able to sample anything from any band around the world before you actually had to commit to buying it?
1: Oh (laughs) yeah.
0: But you know, there are also things that, come from the other side of that and you you spend the money on something and you're like oh I don't really like this and you flip the record over and then there's a song you really like on it so yeah
1: yeah and they're a band that I'm I'm warming up to more I'll Mm -hmm. probably dive into more of their catalog but I mean that Teenage Riot song is just I love that song
0: well when we're done with the show today we're gonna listen to that
1: we're gonna listen to Teenage Riot yeah and have a riot we might even invite some teenagers why don't we just call it Middle Age Riot (laughs) or old guy riot old guy riot (laughs) well
0: I wanted to bring this one for good reason this is Prince's sign of the times look at that fucking hype sticker
1: you may not love it but I do yeah yeah
0: and I probably took 25 minutes to uh to cut the hype sticker out of it look at this damn thing it's a heart isn't that something um so this is Prince's, I'm going to put this up there just because I think it, it's interesting. Sign of the Times is Prince's ninth studio album, released on March 30, 1987 as a double album on Paisley Park Records, which was part of Warner. And it's the follow-up to Parade, and it's Prince's first solo album following his disbanding of the Revolution. The album's songs were large, largely recorded during 86 and 87 sessions for releases that Prince ultimately aborted. Dream Factory, the pseudonymous Camille, and finally the triple album Crystal Ball, Prince eventually compromised with label executives and shortened, shortened the length of the release to a double album. So this is Prince in his high creative time. I mean, the guy recorded constantly, and he's sort of like Stevie Wonder in the sense that he wrote and produced and performed and did all of the stuff himself, you know, recorded everything himself. So this is one of those like Prince became so huge. He 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 was kind of like in the shadow of Michael Jackson in the 80s but became so huge that I think that he put stuff out at such a rate that it it may have like pushed people away from him, right? But the singles on this were "Sign of the Times," "If I Was Your Girlfriend," "You Got the Look," "I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man," and gosh, I got this. I can't remember when I, I can't remember when I bought this. It's been a couple of years, but you know, you I, I'm not going to collect all of Prince's stuff because it's
1: it, it's a little bit like. Trying to collect Dylan. Yeah. There's a that's, lot.
0: That's exactly what I was just getting ready to say. <laughs> I've always loved the cover of this. Oh, yeah. There is Starfish and Coffee is is one of the uh, songs on here. And there's a, there's a thing on Sesame Street where he does a different version of that. Or it <laughs> might be that version with the Sesame Street characters. It is so cool. I'll have to find that and, and post it on our uh, social media but I just love produced arranged composed and performed by Prince.
1: Can you imagine that? Well, and that was everything he did, really. Yeah.
0: Basically. Yeah. Yeah. But he he is one of those dudes that I think the the recording industry really misses, you know. Oh yeah. I mean, he and Tom Petty died so close together, and and I really think that those are two musical souls that we really miss because yeah. there's there's nobody else like them. Yeah, Prince is one of those guys that w- that did so much that it's going to be hard to jump on that horse and ride it into the sunset just because he's going off in every different in direction, many directions. But one thing that he definitely was not afraid of was jai fucking enormous hype stickers. Look at that! That's it's big. That's a big one. Anywho, sign of the times, kids. Give it a listen.
1: And Prince is a. I wonder if if he cited uh, Stevie Wonder as a uh, big influence because Stevie was like Prince before Prince. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh,
0: I think there is no way to avoid that when you're talking about about a black artist. Yeah, Which, when you think about it, um, I, I can't remember what—I I was seeing a commercial for some documentary, and it was talking about how in the early days of MTV they didn't play any black artists because they said—I think what they said was that black artists didn't sell magazines, didn't make news. And this this is in the early 80s. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's—
0: So that really pissed Michael Jackson off first off, but how do you think it made Stevie feel? Yeah. You know, and, and Prince was coming up at that time too. So it's just a really odd, uh, it's it's a really odd thing to think about. MTV became very much associated with black artists and R&B artists later. But yeah, early in its infancy, they, they caught flack for that.
1: Yeah. It, the music industry really controlled... Uh, <laughs> Controlled what we were supposed to listen to yeah. for a very, very, very long time.
0: And you can't, uh, you can't like overstate how big of a, an influence MTV was. I yeah. mean, it just changed record industry and, and radio and live performance for, for years. Yeah. Still has. What's your, uh,
1: is this your last one? Or yeah, an- this will be my last okay. one. And you know you knew I was going to bring this one. Clash. Yeah. The name of the band.
0: The only band that matters.
1: Yes. (laughs) And unlike our other favorites, it's not a gatefold because this is one I probably bought in, I don't know, the early eighties. Yeah. And, uh, this was their third release, third studio album. And for a band that wasn't that well-known right and that big to come out with a double album that takes some gravitas
0: yeah yeah I love the uh, callback to the Elvis Presley record that the yeah that the, the, the front cover, cover. Is. yeah yeah it's a great one
1: 1980 on epic records I love the back because it's kind of like a jazz record it does yeah. it, it
0: definitely has that feel
1: except there's no description you've just right. got the the feel yeah or maybe even a, like a 70s or a 60s Beatles record. Right. The right. early stuff.
0: Man, these guys, uh, I, I don't think the world was quite ready for The Clash. And I don't think The Clash was quite ready for The
1: World. <laughs> yeah. And this was uh, December of 79.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. This and is a good one. This is one that I still don't have.
1: London Calling was a top 20 single mm-hmm. in the UK. Yeah, and the album has sold over five million copies worldwide. I'm sure it's more than that. It's platinum in the U.S.
0: I love the the warning sticker on here. This album contains lyric content which may be offensive to some members of the public.
1: Yeah, this was before Tipper got involved, but yeah. My hatred of Tipper. <laughs> that's a whole other. It's a whole other
0: show. We need to do a show about the PMRC, and we should really do that. Yeah, we should talk about albums by people who spoke at those. Yeah, because Tipper hearings.
1: killed Frank Zappa. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to live by that.
0: Do you have all the clashes?
1: Uh, because. I, I have it all on CD and vinyl. I don't have everything on vinyl. Right. And my favorite Clash album is the one that may have followed this up Sandinista. Sandinista. I love Santa. It's a triple. Yeah.
0: Combat Rock was. That was. 82? Yeah. Or
1: 83, maybe. Maybe 83. Yeah.
0: I know Sandinista is your favorite. I don't know. Yeah. I think Combat Rock is the only one I have on vinyl. I've got their singles CD and that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. They they're definitely a band in motion. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Definitely not I mean, they kind of became famous as punk post-punk, but they're not just a punk band. No. I mean, they were doing dance type music, R&B. They type. were
1: they were experimenting a lot. Yeah. They were With, having fun.
0: Yeah. And that's you know, that's that's so uh, different for a band that, you know, a band that captures that much attention, you know, under normal circumstances would be like, okay, we got to do what's popular, what people are going to expect. And I don't think they ever no. did. And that's probably why they weren't together. Well, you said it was because that's part of the reason that they broke up because... You know, Mick
1: Jones wanted to go more
0: dance, right? He wanted
1: to go more dance, more like reggae influence, mm-hmm. just and I, I think Strummer really just like old time rock and roll, right?
0: Like rockabilly, yeah, and stuff like that. Such a strange collision. I've always loved the this picture of him smashing the guitar on the front. That's is that who's smashing the guitar on this? Do you know? Uh, is it Mick? No, that's, I think that's the base. so that would be Paul. Yeah, I think it is Paul. Yeah. It's such a cool, it, it's an iconic image.
1: It really is. I mean, even if you're not into the class, you know, you know this cover. Yeah. And this thing wound up on the first Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums as like number eight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I need to get it. That's a good one, man.
1: And it was in 2010, it it was one of the 10 classic album covers from a a British artist.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you don't have to be a fan of the band to...
1: to, I would put it up even higher. Yeah, yeah. That's Clash, London Calling.
0: The only band that matters. My last one is this jazz guy named Miles Davis did a... Did an album called Bitches Brew that had like some of the biggest names in jazz playing on it. This is a statement by like a traditional like bop jazz guy that's that's going into this fusion area that's combining guitar and uh, popular music and rock and stuff. This came out in... Uh, well, it was recorded uh, in 1969, and then was released March 30, 1970. His his main band at that point consisted of Wayne Shorter on soprano sax, Dave Holland on bass, Chick Corea on piano, and Jack DeJohnette on drums. The group minus DeJohnette recorded in a silent way in 1969, which also f- featured some other dudes. But listen to the, I mean. You've got Miles, Wayne Shorter, Benny Maupin, Joe Zawinal, Chick Korea, John McLaughlin on electric guitar, Dave Holland, Harvey Brooks, Lenny White, Dejonette, uh, Don Alias, Huma Santos. I mean this these these are all huge dudes in the jazz world and I've always loved the artwork in this too. Um he he was kind of Obviously, uh, an amazing jazz dude, but just always kind of felt like he was always moving forward, and never really did the same thing twice. This is this is a definitely a good listen, but it's it's pretty psychedelic sounding in some. Where parts do you too. rank
1: this in uh, Miles releases?
0: Oh, it's easily one of his top five records. Yeah.
1: Cause it it's one of those that you hear people talk about a lot. So I was just curious if it if it's number two, number three. Yeah. No, you. I don't. I don't care what other people say. Well,
0: no. I like I said. I think definitely top five. Uh, Roundabout Midnight is probably number one for me. Kind of blue would have to be number two. Uh, in a in a silent way, which was right before this. Probably in that top five, and then this would be five. I don't know what four would be, but you know, jazz to me, it it was introduced to me when I was like a fourteen-year-old kid playing in the jazz band at my high school, and it's interesting to have that introduced at the time. I mean, I wasn't just, somebody wasn't just saying, "Hey, listen to this." We were playing yeah. it. Bunch of white kids in suburban Indianapolis playing jazz, um, and so I think the reason it stuck with me is because of that. Had someone just come up at the time and said, "Hey, here's a Miles Davis record," I would have thought they were probably an alien. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So when when there's when you've got a dog in the fight and you're playing the music too, or at least trying to play it, I think that that sticks. A little bit more oh yeah uh it's certainly not something that that everybody can listen to or likes or even wants to spend money on but i i'm very grateful for those folks in my life who introduced me to this kind of thing because it is it's a totally different headspace you know it's It can be, it's modal and it's, it's, it's not based on melody and and stuff like pop music is. And it, it, it's just like flipping a switch in your brain and knowing that it's, you know, opening it up a little bit more, I think. And,
1: and most high schools still have jazz bands, right? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's kind of cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I was lucky, man. I mean, I got to play with some of the best jazz folks in, in Indiana. I played in a couple all-star bands and, uh, you know, those, those are, uh, some of the best moments in in my life in high school were spent with the jazz band or the pep band, you know, playing 25 or six two four at the basketball (laughs) game. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as, as far as Miles concerned, uh, this is definitely a top five record for me and he's another one, man. I, I've got so much, I've got a lot of it. But you don't have everything. Oh No. No, I mean, I, I have. He's a, like Dylan. I started like really digging into Miles like 20 years ago and trying to get a lot of his stuff on CD way before the vinyl thing blew back up. And uh, even on CD at the time, that's a lot of money to spend. But yeah. On vinyl,
1: uh, it's just amped up.
0: Yeah. Double. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to be even. I mean, I'm a lot more selective nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, because I've also got a lot more. I mean, I, the, I told my wife last night when I was going through records, I'm like, man, it is so cool that Wheels and I can say, hey, let's do a show on this, and I can literally walk out into my front room and find 10 albums.
1: That check that box. That
0: check that box. Isn't that amazing? It is. I mean, that's a lot of music. <laughs> that That is a lot of music. <laughs> and we've done, you know, over 60 episodes of this and uh it it's it's great. I mean it's 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 something this has turned into something that I don't think either of us necessarily expected it to. No. But it's such a huge part of my life now and I'm very grateful for it. I'm grateful for you, I'm grateful for Keith and and Jacob and everybody that has come along on the ride because it's just been uh it's it's been a very special part. Yeah, it's of, pretty of, fantastic of our lives in the last few years, so another special part of our podcast is our YouTube channel. And in case you haven't listened to the recent episodes or any of the shorts, you can go to YouTube music and listen to podcasts on there. And it includes the video. And the cool part about it is that when you're listening to it or watching it, your phone can, the screen can go off and it'll keep playing. And on our YouTube channel, we have all the morsels that we've created recently, all the shorts that we're doing, the unboxings, um, the what's in our bags, because it's sometimes it's fun to just say, hey, this is the new stuff that Wheels and I have bought and show you guys. So it's kind of like you guys walking up to us, uh, attacking us in the middle of a (laughs) record store and saying, hey.
1: What's in your bag? Yeah,
0: Yeah, so that's a lot of fun. But we want you guys to check out the YouTube channel appreciate all that work that Jacob's been doing on the thumbnails and putting these pieces together. Uh, He's really taken it to a level that we never would have expected. We want you guys to comment on everything. We want you to share with people that you like. We also want you to give us ideas for new shows and tell us what you'd like us to open. We, We have a lot of requests for you, but I think you guys can handle it. So until next time for Wheels, that guy right there, and me, I'm Jay, we'll see you all the next time around.